0: Hello, and welcome back to Miss D's Lunacy. Today, I have a fabulous guest, and you'll be amazed at what she can do. From her convent school days in Poland, she catapulted overnight into the world of modeling and traveled extensively. She later became a top real estate broker for Sotheby's in Manhattan. Her most recent accomplishment is the release of her romantic thriller, The Racing Heart. How does a woman take on so many varied careers? She's here to tell you all about it. Let me please introduce you to the beautiful and talented Ava Roosevelt.
1: Well, thank you so much, Ms. D. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm enchanted by your introduction, which is so generous. Thank you.
0: Well, you deserve it, darling, because your life is marvelous. And I just cannot wait to start with the story of how Ava morphed into these wonderful, wonderful places in the world and was able to carry herself with such aplomb dignity at all times. But I think it may have something to do with the convent you went to. Well, I think,
1: as I told you, uh, to this day, even when I'm staying at a five-star hotel, I cannot but make my bed without leaving the room. I mean, those uh, days or years at, at the convent taught me a lot of discipline, and uh, also taught me to long for more and for better. So there was no, uh, no mistake in trying to get
0: out of there as soon as I could. I know, but the thing is is that it either breaks you or it makes you, and you were able to survive this experience. Now, the most wonderful part of it all is that at 16 years old, you naughty little thing decided to sneak out of school and to go to keep going on the story. It's the... It, it was in Warsaw. And uh, one
1: place that couldn't have been more notorious was a student's club that was totally forbidden to all the students of uh, the convent, obviously, because it was a den of sins, as Sister of Nazareth referred to it. <laughs> um, there were a lot of dancing, a lot of uh, music, and a lot of, uh, you know, cavorting between the patrons. But I did sneak in and uh, sneaked out. Um, Thinking you snuck out. <laughs> Thinking that, and unbeknownst to me, a photographer took a picture of me uh, with the sign, the name Hybrides, that was in the back. And of course, a week later, this photograph made a cover of a major, major magazine. And that was the end of my days at the convent. But that is actually what uh, brought me to modeling.
0: Exactly. I mean, if you're on a cover of a magazine, you might as well... Have a career right then and there.
1: So my my wish has become um,
0: a reality. I, I'm sure your mother wasn't too happy my about My mother this.
1: was totally uh, devastated. <laughs> my father wasn't saying very much, but uh, they never got really their signals straight as far as I was concerned. Well, it was tough that. in those days, darling. It was very tough. True. Now,
0: then you bumped into Mark Bon, who was working with Keith Jean-Dior.
1: Well, actually... Uh, Christian Dior, the firm, the house, came yeah. to Poland yeah. to market their cosmetics. And Marc Bon, who was then designing for Christian Dior, who was, of course, dead, um, spotted me on the street. And I was just gingerly walking away in my little satin and white color uh, outfit uniform from the convent. And they said, would you like to participate in our show? Well, of course, my mother said, no. My father said, yes, darling. <laughs> And, so and you said I, dribble yet? And I said yes, yes, indeed. So I ended up um, becoming uh, somewhat of a sensation overnight because I fitted in those very tightly uh, tailored clothes and uh, got dozens of different covers. And uh, lo and behold, they invited me to come to Paris.
0: As Miss. Yes,
1: yes, I became a minister of Poland, I omitted to um, say that.
0: That's extraordinary. In like three days, all this happened to you.
1: It it happened in less than that. It's actually 24 hours because they came in and came out and then departing, they said, if you want to come. And I said, of course, I want to come. So it was a bit of a predicament because I was only 16 years old and uh, my parents eventually agreed. And I ended up in Paris knowing in my heart, as I traveled with a suitcase, one outfit and five dollars in my pocket i knew i knew that i wasn't coming back
0: (laughs) but then everything worked so beautifully you had your little atelier in paris and you were working non-stop
1: and that is true and i couldn't wait until i was 18 years old to buy my porsche That was a great accomplishment i had an apartment on the Rue de la Vendrée, which was in uh, the 16th arrondissement. A beautiful, That's where I lived. Yes, beautiful little apartment. And life was really very good, very good. And uh, except, except after a while. After, uh, after a while, my Polish passport expired and I had to travel to Canada. Um, Amazing. Where Amazing. I became a landed emigrant. Actually, the idea came to me because Canada, I thought, had... The least population on the largest amount of space <laughs> so i was certain that they would invite me and uh, embrace my idea uh, it wasn't as easy they asked me for my iq and a lot of very very specific questions one of which was whether i was a communist and i said look i i, I was brought up in a catholic convent you know we, we didn't talk about politics there which prayed that's what we did anyway so that worked out very well and actually, those days in Edmonton, Alberta, in the m- mid of freezing weather that I never forget, I was traveling back and forth to Toronto to model. And so I became a bit of a, a I had a variety of extremely demanding jobs that required me to get up at five o'clock in the morning and stay in wow. the cold weather. But I did a lot of photographic modeling for Volkswagen. I became, uh, it, it was a very successful kind of promotion, which um, ultimately led me to Los Angeles.
0: Right, but Paris was a blast while you were there. I mean, you met the tout monde, exactly. Well, of
1: course, but you know, the, one thing that people misconstrue is that the modeling, the life of uh, a person who is modeling like myself, is glamorous and wonderful. In fact, it isn't anything even close. You work, close. You work extremely, Long extremely hour. hard. And the only reason that I probably, one of the reasons that I became so successful was that they could count on me, that I was always on time, and I always had my wigs, you know? <laughs> so that was essentially uh, it. And um, this is something that I'm thankful for being at the Convert. That's because what I, I actually, actually, it taught me the, the Teutonic discipline. I'm half German. And so uh, it was an experience that I think if I had a daughter I probably would suggest that she does that just for a year or two to learn uh, the discipline and also it was a time in which um, I read because I couldn't get along with anybody I didn't really have any friends though there were all the other girls were orphans you know they're all very very depressed and and so and the other thing was that in order to really get out of there On some level, even for the weekends, I had to have very good grades. So I started nonstop. And Mm -hmm. and that's why I can do mathematic numbers, you know, sort of in the middle of the night. And these were the good things. I try to think in life as of taking good things out of, you know, making lemonade out of lemons, basically.
0: Well, that's what's so wonderful about how you survived all these experiences Mm -hmm. because it's very difficult for somebody so young to be able to be propelled into a world that was, never part of what you thought was going to be and then try to manage it so marvelously as you well did and everybody thought you were quite bright sue so (laughs) it was an addition there
1: yes well there are a lot of temptations you know when you are young and the doors open easily Mm -hmm. um beauty doesn't hurt but you have to be able to use it wisely (laughs) you know because it
0: goes (laughs) for one so now we're in canada and then you end up after working, 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 I, what happened to the Porsche? Because you're always doing- ah, the Porsche, ah, the, my
1: poor Porsche. Well, uh, I left it on the corner of oh. uh, <laughs> Rue de la Faisanderie and uh, uh, Rue, what was that other little street? The uh, uh, General Appare. Yes. And I just left it on the corner, and then a year or two later when I came back, of course, it was towed away, it and was... the tickets that it accumulated- Wasn't
0: it worth it. <laughs> wasn't worth it picking it up, so oh, that was my... where my Porsche went. But it was a well-deserved car. Yes. So now we are deciding to go to L.A. Yes. Off we go again. Off we go again. And uh, this was
1: a, a, a kind of a wonderful reunion because at the time, Roman Polanski, who is my countryman, uh, whom I met as a little girl in Poland, he was already very famous for his first movie called The Knife in the Water, which actually created his career. So he lived in Los Angeles. He was very happily married to Sharon Tate. and uh you know these were the years of uh where again i i worked i had an agent and we spent a lot of time together with sharon she became a very very good friend of mine she was she was a wonderful human being and so um that night the fateful night of august 9th uh you were supposed to go there i was supposed to go there actually i spoke to her at five o'clock in the afternoon and she said you know, we were going to go to dinner and then come with us. And I said, well, I can't come to you to dinner because I have, it was Friday night. I have a dinner with a German producer. And then afterwards, you know, I don't know how long this is going to take, but I have a photo shoot next morning. She said, well, try to come for a little bit after your dinner. And at the time you were driving. And the time I was driving my first great extravagance, which was a Phantom Rolls Royce, it was a famous Rolls Royce because it was once driven by one of the Rolling Stones. But you know, you could buy a Rolls Royce for five $5,000 these days. Anyway, nothing ever worked in this car. <laughs> I mean, it was one of those things where nothing, it, nothing worked. It was always constantly breaking down with one thing or another. But most annoying was the fact that the gas gauge never functioned properly. So after my dinner um, with the German producer, Around 11, 11.30, I made a decision that I, I was going to just go to Cielo Drive for maybe oh, half an hour. Dear. And in those days, I had a mid-crash on John Phillips, who lived on the way. So I drove up and, you know, mind you, Sunset uh, Boulevard yeah. going up the hills. Yeah. So I caught in the corner of my eye that the gas gauge was getting really close to empty. So when I came to John Phillips's house, it was calm, quiet there. I said, they probably all are Sharon's. So I drove a little bit further and then the gas gauge came at empty. And I had to calculate uh, whether to to take a chance of really, really not having any fuel to go up. But how about coming back? There was no gas station inside. So I said to myself, you know, you better turn around. And I turned around. I drove back to Beverly Wilshire, where I lived with my agent during the week, got into my uh, bed, and, you know, I had to get up at like 4.30 to go to Universal Studios to shoot this Alberto VO5 uh, commercial, which went very well, and I I sort of elated. It just couldn't have gone better. You know, I looked well, the hair flew, and everything was wonderful. And then I saw uh, in the parking lot when I was moving out this pale blue uh cougar that my agent had blue and sitting and looking at her she was driving and her face was as blue as the car i mean she was ashen looking and so she pulled in she intercepted me got out of the car and she wow. said you better sit down darling she said and then she burst into tears and she said they're all dead i said who is that what happened and, you know, the first thought everybody in those days, man, you know, this is no secret. I'm not saying anything inappropriate. I mean, everybody was doing so many like, drugs. Yeah. Not Roman, not Roman. He was very against it. But everybody else, it was the, the, the sort of a thing of the moment. And I never had really, I never got into it. I never liked it. But the first thought that crossed oh. my mind was that probably something happened. I said, no, 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 they were all killed. I said, killed Who? So at this point, it was, it was just a, a sheer panic because you, you, the, the FBI was investigating everybody. Where were you? How do you know these people? What, what was her, your relation? Well, no it was but,
0: Sharon who had gotten...
1: And of course, who, who was killed brutally was Sharon Tate. I, 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 Wojtek Frykowski, who was a very good friend uh, from Poland, actually. Gibby Folger, who was his girlfriend. She was the Folger coffee heiress. She died. She died. Wojtek Frykowski, Jay Sebring, and Sharon Tate, and there was a caretaker who lived in the cottage. They also killed him, love and love it, nobody knew. It was it was not making any sense, you know, that somebody will go there and just uh, Sharon was stabbed, I think, twenty-seven times, and she fought for her life, you know. She she tried to. She was pregnant. Oh, she was pregnant. So they killed her and her and her son, an unborn son. So. And the night, the night after, the La Blanca murders occurred that had the same M.O., you know, the writing in blood pigs, Back, to death to the pigs. When I ultimately became a writer with the Racing Heart, then I started writing for Opulence magazine and I did a, a, an in-depth research in all the files when I wrote that article, How I Escaped Death.
0: You really did.
1: I really did, and you know, this is this is a moment I think where I said to myself, "Who do I thank for? Do I thank God? Do I do I thank thank your th- gas gauge, g- my gas gauge? Do I do, thank do I do I think uh, do I think my upbringing? Maybe those days at the convent, you know, the strict discipline, having to be always on time. And that's my father. I mean, my father had something called Kinderstube, which in German means." Uh, uh, a traveling fever (laughs) traveling fever so if we're going somewhere usually a day in advance you know at least an hour in advance I mean always waited at the airports and train stations but that experience changed us all it took the innocence out of everybody I I think we became instantly grown ups I mean look it's 46 years later and I say to myself sometimes you know that how how incredibly fortunate I was to be spared! How fortunate! It's an amazing. and Roman Polanski luckily made. He wasn't it, there. He wasn't there. He was in London when he came. He was a complete basket case. I mean, you ca- you cannot imagine. And I think that changed everybody. It changed Hollywood. And then don't forget, it took a while for the authorities to get these people. How long did it take? Oh, several years because they were. Finally, the girls who participated, in the yes. Susan Atkins and Patricia Caramayoko and Tex, because Manson physically didn't do it. He dispatched these people. They were exactly. his surrogates. Well, eventually, the girls were arrested and they were bragging. They were saying how wonderful it was that killing was like sex. That's what Susan Atkins said. She Good said God. killings was like sex. It was just oh, the horrible. knife in and out. It was horrible. I mean, horrible people. I cannot imagine. And so how, that's how they caught them all. Well, that's how they caught them all but they escaped the death sentence because it was commuted i think in 1972
0: so they were able to be to not, they, were, they yeah, were able to, to, get to, out of to escape Same of with these people who yes. killed this family in connecticut they changed for the death penalty no. which unfortunately yes. They didn't get communed to it. They should have. That's exactly right. So they get life in prison. And I believe they're still there.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the fact that that Charles Manson is still alive, is just is just mind boggling to me. It's just uh, that he managed to live all these years. And I think somebody even married. This was an experience that not many people luckily can say that they haven't gone through. But this is a part of growing. And this is a part of experiences that I think taught me That everything that happens in our life, we have to make the best out of it, really. That's true. Yeah, we have to. We don't have another choice. We don't have another choice.
0: Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, thank God you weren't there. I mean, really, I cannot imagine you would have been there. Yeah. You were on your way. Yeah. You were, what, 10 minutes away, 15 minutes away? Oh,
1: even not that. And the strange thing about it is that the murders occur around midnight, and this was just when I was turning around. Because I remember looking at my clock and I said, oh, you know, it's close to midnight by the time I get there, by the time I run out of gas and what this <laughs> and that and, you know.
0: Amazing. Yeah. Okay, so you got you wanted to get rid of the Rolls Royce and you wanted to get a sports car.
1: <laughs> oh, yes, of <laughs> course. So, you know, everything settled down kind of uh, after that, maybe a year or two years later. And um, I did very well, you know, doing what I did, which was working and modeling. and But then I decided after... Uh, alberto vo5 commercials where i really made some real money that i wanted to forget about my broken down rolls royce and, <laughs> and just go to europe and get myself a sports car and just drive through the south of france you know and and just have a wonderful time and so somebody um, mentioned to me cars that,
0: are important in the yes, story yes 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 very important so okay.
1: Somebody mentioned to me uh, that uh, there was an American living in London by the name of David Weir. Yeah. And they said, go and see David because he has all these cars for sale. And, you know, he has a motor racing team. And so to make a long story long, um, uh-huh. I rang his doorbell. He had a little muse in London. It was actually a quite wonderful little place. And this woman opened the door. And, um, you know, um, with the arrogance of youth, I dismissed her as a maid. It turned out to be that was his girlfriend. So I didn't make many friends there that day. Nonetheless, he said that he had a beautiful Ferrari Dino that he wanted to sell. So he drove me somewhere and it turned out to be that his partner was a crook. So the car was not in his name. So he couldn't sell it to me. You know, it's okay. one of those things anyway. So, but um, I lived in... New York at the time, and I was working for Eileen Ford modeling, and um, lo and behold, David one day rang my doorbell, and he said, "Here I am." Well, I said, "Well, that's wonderful." So we went to see his uh, very social aunt, who lived in a beautiful uh, apartment at eight twenty-five Fifth Avenue, and she sat me down, and she said, "My dear, don't take him seriously. You know, (laughs) (laughs) don't don't take him seriously. He's very nice, but." Never mind. Just find yourself a nice, decent <laughs> husband who's just not going to be racing or doing all these crazy things. Of uh, course, I didn't listen. But when David invited me to come to Le Mans, and I never heard of Twenty Four Hours of Le Mans until then, he said, "Look, I am racing," and I was horrified because it, it was Monaco, a, I think no, no. Mm. Monaco is the Grand Prix. Ah, Grand Prix are the different kind of cars. I see. The Twenty Four Hours of Le Mans is. Totally different kind of cars. There are four types of cars there wow. uh, Formula One cars in Mon- Monaco. But anyway, so he said, I want you to come with me to uh, Paris and then we go to Le Mans. And I said, Well, why would I do that? And he said, Well, I send you a ticket. I said, Great. So he sent me a ticket and I ended up in Paris. And I also uh, knew him a little bit by then and I had an experience with him with cars and I was horrified because he was a terrible driver. I mean, just the worst driver. He was impulsive and and uh, cut corners and did everything wrong in my book. But anyway, what do I know? So uh, we're at Le Mans in the middle of the race. I was so petrified that he was going to die that I told him, I said, I will never see you again. I will never date you if you don't give up racing. Well, of course, you know, he won his category, which was a great victory. And he had, uh, because there are four types of cars. You have Formula One and two and then you have road cars, and then you have cars like our car, which was essentially a a, a road prototype. And it was a famous car. It was a 512 M Ferrari uh, that was famous because Steve McQueen used it in his movie Le Mans. So um, we ultimately agreed that he wasn't going to race anymore. And when we arrived um, in uh, New York, we got married, And shortly thereafter, we found out that we had absolutely no money because he didn't pay his taxes while he lived in Europe. So whatever, whatever. Um, So anyway, uh, uh, David went and uh, was supposed to sell this famous car that we had, but instead of which he he exchanged it for another more um, elaborate car. But that was David. He was, he was, uh, he was a wonder, he died of cancer uh, maybe 10 years ago. That's so sad. Yes, but... You know, I took uh, to heart this desire, this promise that I made to myself that if I ever uh, sit down to write, I will write a story, something that will have to do with the 24 hours of Le Mans, which is the most exciting uh, auto race on earth. There is no other because... Uh, race essentially is a formula for something to happen, and it yeah. never is anything good that happens, you know. And usually. <laughs> usually, you know, dangerous. it's, it's, a, it's, a, <clears throat> it's a, basically an accident looking for a place to happen. So it's, huh, it's Very a, well said. So it's a, a, a continuous process of breakdowns, and that's why it's called endurance race, because the car that completes the maximum laps and finishes the, the cross line is the winner. And winning Le Mans is an equivalent of winning uh, one of the biggest prizes. There is no money. Um, there is no money prize. It's one of the most expensive races in the world. But it's prestigious. But it's prestigious, and also, you know, if you, if Audi wins Le Mans, well, you know who's going to buy their road cars? I mean, you know, ah. that's that's how this translates. Uh, in Uh, the 60s 70s and the 80s the le mans was dominated by ferrari by porsche by aston martin by uh, even bentley all the europeans oh ferrari was huge porsche huge and then ultimately you know the germans got into it with uh audi uh peugeot was very big but it's all a phenomenal uh, excitement there is no other race maybe the uh, 24 rolex which is daytona which is also 24-hour race which is exciting but it's more monotonous because it's just round it's going and around and around and around and around here le mans mm-hmm. is very unique in the respect that you have the racetrack and then the roads of le mans the town yeah. are combined so that even adds to the danger of it because you don't have a extremely flat surfaces all over. I mean, the speeds are two hundred twenty-five miles an hour in in you know down the Mall Sound Strait. The very, oh my goodness! That's why I was uh, very upset when David, in the middle of the night, you know, was uh, fatigued, and and I said to him, I think you should quit. And I'm glad that he did. But then, when I was living in New York, and um, actually. Subsequently living in New York, um, we got divorced and then I vowed that I will never marry again. Yeah. It was it was my famous uh, promise to myself I'd really love, but nonetheless I started a very interesting career. I went to Columbia University, I was learning how to write and poetry, but in the meanwhile I worked at Sadby's. Uh, selling real estate. And it's an interesting career because you learn a lot about people and learn a lot about yourself. You have to be, again, very disciplined. So when I got for my interview, uh, the lady at the time who was running the office, she said to me, why on earth would you want to do this? Um, I mean, you certainly don't look like you need to earn a living. And she said, you have no idea how difficult it is. So I said to her, you know, I'm quite fed up with just playing tennis and going to parties. And I just really need to have some purpose in life. And she said to me, tell me, what did you do before? And I said, actually, I was modeling. Oh, she said, you will have no problem. Anybody Uh who can take rejections in modeling would do extremely well in real estate.
0: (laughs) Of course, you never did get a rejection. Oh, yeah,
1: I got plenty, believe me. Of course, you get plenty. I was either too thin or too tall to this or to other. You know, there's always something. But, you know, you have to grow a little thinner skin. Well, my
0: sister modeled forever and a day. She did. Did she went to Milan and she went to Paris and she went to London and she did covers all over. She was actually very, very successful. And it was quite a drama. She was a very much of a drama queen. Absolutely beautiful. <laughs> and did all her own makeup and oh, stage. Really? She was marvelous. She was a great actress as well. I get a little bit of that too sometimes. Oh, you
1: certainly do, my dear. Yes. I do. <laughs> so
0: anyway, you had some friends. And a friend of yours, this is the fa- Tell the oh, story. Because oh. this is really cool. Besides the fact that you're modeling real estate and taking courses and writing and seemed to know all about cars, which is all going to cu- couple together. It's all going to cut together.
1: So um, I think in those days, my life was really quite uh, productive. I worked at Sotheby's. I had my beautiful apartment on Fifth Avenue. I was spending weekends in Southampton. I had a lot of friends. And I was very contented not being married. Uh-huh. And so I had a friend um, whom you know. Yes. Um, she called me up sort of in the middle of a rainy November night, day. I was at my desk and she said, you know, my dear, you have to run. Um, I was supposed to have lunch with Bill, you mean Bill Roosevelt. And she said, yes, you know, but but I said, yeah, you probably something broke down or you you are still in Southampton. She said, exactly. And, you know, that was before the cell phones. So exactly. And Bill was, as I learned later, very, very, very proper. And lunch was always at 12, you know, the boarding school schedule <laughs> anyway. So she said, go, go to this place. And it was in New York. Um, the place at the time was called Arcadia. Now it's called Amaranth.
0: Yes, It's in the
1: corner of 63rd 63rd. 63rd and Madison. So I walked in there and I never forget this lovely gentleman was sitting in the three-piece suit and he looked at me and he said who might you be? And I said well I'm Ava, friend of Barbara and he said oh something happened to Barbara didn't it? (laughs) I said yes it did and I just came Uh, to tell you that she couldn't have lunch with you and I said well how about you can you have lunch with me and I said well that would be lovely so we had lunch he walked me back to the office and then he called me and he said "Um, would you like to go to a party with me tonight oh and I said well I would love to but if you don't mind let me call Barbara and I call you back so I called Barbara and I said. she didn't well, uh, no, no, no. She said, no, absolutely not. I think you should. You'll be so bored. And you know, <laughs> I said, well, I, I don't think I'll be that bored. I didn't find him that boring. She said, well, good for you. Anyway, that was the end of the conversation. I went to the party. And then uh, Bill took me for a nightcap to doubles. And we sat there and he said, you know, my mother just passed away in Aww. Palm Beach. And I'm going there this weekend. Would you like to join me? So I said to him I was very sorry about his mother's death, but I really didn't trouble with people I didn't know. And so I told him perhaps some other time. And so that was that. And then he invited me, I think, to go to the White House Couple of times, which hey. we did, and that was that was exciting. I didn't decline that invitation. Who in the right mind would? But anyway,
0: well he, he was FDR's grandson. Yes, like. yes,
1: yes. Roosevelt. That yes, was. there were a lot of different activities. Uh, you know, the birth of Eleanor Roosevelt, her death, her birthday, this and that. So constantly, she was revered. You know, yeah, more so, so. than 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 she's now. I mean, she's different people are revered these days. But in any event, we started dating, and of course, my my dear friend Barbara. I did absolutely everything possible to break it all up, Uh, to break it all up. Oh, my goodness. How wonderful parties and all of that. I was always seated somewhere in a very undesirable location while Bill was surrounded by beautiful young models. But nonetheless, we did get married. How wonderful. Yes. And we had a beautiful, wonderful 20 years in which lived a very, very productive life because Bill always worked. You know he was he was a pilot we had our own plane we flew to the bahamas but he was on wall street it was fascinating and he also was with the william h Donner foundation the family foundation so there were a lot of varied interests and it it, it was probably the most groundedly productive type of life because there was the money making and the money giving away there was charity there was uh education. Uh, they were friends. There were visits. There philanthropy. Were tra- philanthropy. Charities. Yes. All of that was really very
0: well-rounded. You met, yes, yeah, some very interesting people who were procuring for other people. And you... It, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, and it was of flitting about, you were actually exactly. were doing, some, meaning some,
1: and doing great things for good causes. causes. And there was American Cancer Society and the Preservation Foundation and the William H. Donner Foundation. All of this had some real rhyme and reason. So when Bill passed away untimely from cancer, I found myself at a crosswork as to what to do. Either succumb to chagrin and you know mourning and kind of disconnect from life or connect with life in a wrong way. And so I decided that it was the time to fulfill my dream that I had forever, which was to sit and write down uh, this novel that I wanted to write. Forever. Forever, to weave it around uh, the 24 Hours of Le Mans. So my previous husband, David Weir, um, was still alive and I called him up and I said, David, I really want to uh, write my book and he said well go ahead and do it and I, I said well are you going to help me and he said how can I help you I said well we had a motor racing team we raced at Le Mans <laughs> but he said those days racing at Le Mans was like racing dune buggies I mean what's happening today is a completely different world he said you have to go there you have to actually go there so i it was not easy to get a press pass for le mans trust me i did a lot of uh pulling you have to have a letter of recommendation there you have to be a real journalist well le mans is probably the most prestigious and most control environment because the pit lane is open to journalists only a couple of hours uh during the race and you really don't see anything because pit lane is everything is happening there. You know, the tire changes, the, the driver changes. And so when I got there, um, I said to myself, I have to look for an American team because you know, there's no sense of looking in the past. So I saw Ferrari, Ruiz Competizione, which was a, a Ferrari team uh, from Houston. And this beautiful Ferrari was standing there and it was a gentleman and went up to him and I said, I talked to you. He said, I'm a little bit busy, but I said, well, uh, maybe I can talk to you some other time. He said, well, he handed me his card and sort of, you know, but I never let go. So I was already in the process of starting uh, The Racing Heart. I was overwriting. writing. But, you know, the story happens during the 24 hours of right. Le Mans. The story starts the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And there is a lot of technical information that has to be correct in correct. order for the story to really make sense. So I emailed him. I wrote a story about him and the team for Cavallino magazine. And then I, it turned out to be that miraculously he lived half an hour away from Palm Beach. So for two years while I was writing, he would come for lunch and stay the whole entire day and he would say, No, 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 this is not how this happens. This is not it <laughs> how doesn't
0: amazing your own personal tutor.
1: <laughs> I mean, it was an extraordinary. So, you know, the racing heart is really sublimely vetted when it comes to the accuracy. And I think you can feel it. You know, you can feel that this is this has been written by somebody who's been there, who experienced it. And you know, and people you meet during the course of twenty four hours of Le Mans race that it's really based on such hope in a split of a second in a, in, a, in a moment all of this can just turn in a ball of fire you know it's extraordinarily dangerous environment because there is a discrepancy in, spe- in speed between the different types of cars Correct. so one is crawling along at 80 miles an hour <laughs> the other one is coming at 220 miles an hour you can imagine you know how the collision could, could happen yes of course and it's a very difficult, very, very one of the fastest racing tracks in, in the world, in fact. So working, you know, the, the book gave me a different perspective because when I started it, I really didn't focus that much on my English, which ultimately has improved. And I had a, a, another extraordinary person along, Tom Clancy, the late Tom yeah. Clancy, the famous writer, Happens to be a very good friend of my late husband, Bill. And we spent many, many times with him in Washington. So when Bill passed away, this tradition of getting along and going there for for dinner once a month, you know, kind of lasted. And Tom Clancy was a very unusual uh, human being. He was utterly socially inept. And um, he loved to go out and loved to have drinks with the boys. And I was one of the boys, you know. I was just Ah. kind of... Uh, and his his team was because he, as you know, his books were extraordinarily research and vetted and yeah, full of details. Well, he didn't get it out of his uh, uh, you know vocabulary or dictionary. He got it out of his friends who were former FBI agents and people who were in the intelligence uh, community because that's only how you can do it. So they they were delighted to work with him and I met them and,
0: and you did some work for the effort uh, for the marketing you did. For yes. The company that
1: was- ah, uh, and that was another what what transpired was that in those days when Bill was still alive and I lived in New York before That's I, right. we were traveling between Florida and New York. And yeah. so my real estate was sorts of it wasn't really happening because you have to be in one place at the same. And also I did it. I've done it. It was great. I was very successful. It's time to move on. So I met a a gentleman by the name of Michael Hirschman. He is a world-renowned expert, anti-terrorist expert. And we met on a plane traveling from Nice. And we started chatting. And I said to him, I said, if I didn't know any better, I would think that you work for the FBI because Uh. you have too much information. And it was at the time, you know, remember the flight, the the TWA flight that got shut down nobody really knew what happened no he said i don't work for the BI, i work for myself i have this company called fairfax international in virginia and at the end of the nine hour flight he said to me would you like to work with me amazing and i said well you know i don't know anything about your business it doesn't matter what matters is who you know and right. the other thing i will teach you so uh, these were uh, extraordinary times because my function basically was to be a rainmaker. But we did due diligence and uh, you know financial Clever. information yeah. for banks. It was an amazing uh, one very amazing experience where
0: you um, learned a lot. When
1: you learn a lot. and That's uh, why
0: you're so good with all these numbers and ve- and figuring out who people are. That's well, you, he taught of,
1: me. He taught yes. me. We had once lunch where there was a couple sitting at another table. And he was observing this man. And then at the end of the day, we were at the office and he said to me, I want you to call him. And I said, well, why? Well, you know him. I, I just have an idea. Maybe you could ask him something. And so I said, sure. I called him up and we met for a drink and I had my directives what to ask him. So um, as it turned out to be, an NFL league was investigating one individual who wanted to buy it. And, you know, the part of the vetting is what we were doing, you know, information about people, because NFL wouldn't uh, just sell a team or, or. hire somebody without vetting i mean it's just it doesn't exist that's how it goes of course so i said talk to him ask him about this this person so i went there and about 20 minutes later he finally said to me he said about this is all very simpatico but i think you have something in mind what what do you want (laughs) and i said well actually i wanted to ask you about so and so and he looked at me he looked down and sideways and then he took a napkin and he wrote down two words Bus stop. I didn't know what it was at the time, but bus stop was a famous case that indicted, among other people, this gentleman who, in fact, did nothing except uh, pleaded fifth on every question that he was asked. And as it turned out to be, you know, I worked in an office where there were five prosecuting attorneys. You know, it turns out to be one of them had the transcript of that case in his basement. No. And I went back to Michael and I said, Michael, how did you know that he was going to give us any information? He said, because I could tell when the name of this man was brought up that he hated him. That was something in his body language. And this was one thing what I learned, you know, it was when you observe people, you can easily tell whether they're telling the truth or not, really. Yeah. And lies have very short legs, you know, and eventually eventually they, they come up. But Michael had a an amazing capacity to, I, I never tried to fib with him because he always would, he said, "Eva," and he would <laughs> look at me turn, and I said, you know, I could, I could never, I could never fool him. So
0: all this, of all these experiences are now part of your book. They are indeed. And yeah. there's terrorism and FBI and counterterrorism. Oh, yes, there's all and of And the that. president's son and <laughs> lots of sex. It's a very racy, <laughs> very racy book. But hey, what the Haiti, I It IO, is a
1: book for a mature audience. A mature <laughs> audience, I would say.
0: It's all in there. I mean, it's yes. just amazing. The technical details were extraordinary because I started rereading it and I was like, Wow. You really did spend time studying.
1: Well, I, I took a pride in in writing about something that I thought I should know. That's one thing, you know, that's a rule of good writing is to write about something you know. And also I think that this is a story that might inspire both men and women. I think women mostly because it's a story about a transformation of a young woman.
0: Uh, Very similar to you a bit when it, you were transformed yes. from the convent into yes. this sort of top model. Miss Dior, etcetera, etc. Cetera, and having had such changes in your life, plus you also then did so many other things. This is why my opening mark. How does a woman have so many various careers? And it's very rare for people to be able to say what you were what you have done because it's unheard of.
1: And I th- it was very important to me to convey this message to women that a transformation is a necessary part of who we are. Exactly. That this girl had all the makings of a classic gold digger. And she got herself out of that mode and she became a heroine. And it happened through making mistakes. And you cannot live life without making those errors because if you repeat them more than once, it's a whole different story.
0: That's that's
1: true. But if if you continue on making mistakes and saying, hey, you know, I did this wrong, I'm going to turn around. And this is what this girl did. And the, In una- the book An abridged version actually is a version that I rewrote. The first version was shorter was uh, ed- uh, by uh, my editor who said, "I think we need to fit the, the formula of a classic uh, thriller." No. Uh, I said to myself, "No, I think I'm going to go back and change things." The, the original hero, Brad Harrington, was too perfect. There was nothing really wrong with him. And in real life, you know, that that is not doesn't exist. Also, the ending uh, predictable in a way. I fought for that ending because I said to myself, this girl risked her life and she did all of she did. And why would I not honor that with giving her the man of her dreams? So I met the man of her dreams being a little bit of a man of uh, not so uh, good sleep. Let's put it this way. because he two-timed her as it turned out to be. And again, it is a lesson for a woman who's reading it to see that, you know, just pay attention. The, all the signs were there, okay? But she didn't pay attention. And so she went along with this vision uh, of this Brad Harrington, the son of the president, who in fact was not so honorable after all. But the interesting thing transpired with the FBI agent who in fact became her protector during the 24 hours of Le Mans because That's this right. was the only person with whom she could contact. So at first he really didn't have much respect for her and it started as a antagonist and protagonist relationship. Mm-hmm. They both kind of were at odds with each other. You know, he was telling her to do something she didn't want it to do and he thought she was a, a flighty woman going from one man to another, from one party to another that she, uh, basically, you know, could serve a purpose, but it was a limited purpose. When he realizes how courageous she is, how smart she was, how willing she was to stay as a team player with the uh, joint task force, you know, where they're trying really to get to disable these terrorist bombs. And uh, then something happens. She's beginning to get close to the FBI agents. So at the end, Well, there's no end well there is an end but i won't tell you what it is good girl i won't tell you what it is because the end is actually rather than her going yet with another man or having this this vision of having to be with a man she actually decides that this time she's going to go it alone that she's going to just decide a little bit later instead of just you know rushing into things and so this is a girl who, who could uh, possibly have done it 24 hours ago or uh, six months ago. And this is her transformation. And this is actually something that I wish, if I had a daughter, I would probably wish that she had these experiences. That's so when she finds the, the right guy, that you see the signs. And when you are with the wrong guy, that you don't, were you know that you're not myopic about what he's not, um, you know, woman, we, I think it's a harder for us. It is harder for us because it's so much is expected in a way for us to be mothers. I've never been a mother, but I consider yeah. all my friends, my children. So there you have Aww, it. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> do. You <too? laughs>
0: Well, it's hard to be a mother. It's much harder than one thinks.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's very true. But your experiences are fascinating because then what I think, what you were doing was that they were looking at the book in as in L.A., right, to make a movie out of it. So right this now, is what's so interesting.
1: So what we are what we are doing right now, there is a production company with which I am in discussions, and we're actually looking for a right uh, to adopt the racing heart into mini TV series. And that was the reason why I read uh, the book and call it now the original on the bridge version. Making it into a TV series is somewhat challenging because it is a tri-dimensional book that is happening in the present time. There is a terror plot and yeah. also you have a lot of flashbacks. So my vision, and actually I'm looking right now, uh, contestants of screenplay writing uh, contests, winners, uh, because I would like to work with a woman, possibly someone um, talented, I think that's the most intuitive, important, as well. intuitive, uh, who is going to get this girl, you know, who's going to get my heroine, who, who has enough experience also to be able to uh, it's uh, I wish I would. Uh, I wish I knew how to do it. And maybe ultimately I will have to learn. Well, <laughs> But it's a whole different you know, set of skills. Different. Yes, it is. But we're moving along. We're moving along and it's all of these things take time because all creative process takes time. And, you know, when you are working with people, you have to adhere to their vision to some extent because you cannot stop and just dig your heels and say my way on. So, um, that's where we are right now. And I'm very hopeful that probably by the end of the year we will have this this draft or maybe sooner but we're working on it right now
0: that's very exciting so now my dear listeners would love to find out how do i get this racing heart which is such a wonderful wonderful fun book to read and so where do they find this well
1: amazon.com and kindle i think that's the best bet so you can either buy the hard copy uh, i mean the the hardback and have a paper copy or you get it on a. And I'm just warning you all uh, that you will have to earmark some time because I was told by Tom Clancy, he said, make it an all-nighter and make it a book that nobody will be able to put down. So I worked very, very hard and I hope you
0: appreciate it. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful, Ava. I wish you such good luck because if it could be a TV pilot, that would be absolutely marvelous.
1: I think it would be a very good story. Yes.
0: Yes, because it's got all the things that are going on right now t- today. And it was going on some time ago. And I'm just so glad that you're alive. Thank the Lord to be able to ha- listen, tell us all about your experiences in this book. Um, the best of luck. Thank you. Very, very much so. Uh, as I say, God bless everybody. Peace for everybody. And lead us not into temptation. We can find it ourselves. Indeed. <laughs> Good luck. God bless. Have a great day. (laughs)
1: Thank you.